warm. And speaking of making people happy, my good friend Al Bat joins us. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, you know, I took piano a uh, hundred years ago as part of as a required thing as uh, in college. I feel so bad. I remember nothing Aww. whatsoever about it. We had to start out with those uh, kind of paper or plastic practi- practice things that you took home so you could hit the keys, and then you had to you had to pass. You had to play one song. And I don't even remember <laughs> what song I played. It was just, it was uh, all us uh, dunderheads that didn't know anything. We're all in that class together. And I, uh, sadly, I guess all we wanted was just for it to be over with. Aww. So we could get on with life. And uh, looking back, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only one of that group, probably said, you know, should have paid attention a little bit more in there because we were all we wanted to do was learn how to play one song so we could uh, I think it was a pass fail thing so if you played the song you passed and that was pretty much it and Uh, our parents started us young we were very young and so I had 11 years of piano lessons and organ lessons and clarinet lessons and vocal lessons so uh, music is a big part of, of my life and of course now I get to play it on the radio and it's a lot easier than all I did with all those lessons <laughs> that's great yeah my uh not so much my immediate family my dad was a good singer but uh oh I had uncles played in bands and things so there certainly was music I don't know why it avoided me yeah I I'm hearing music outside now I'm hearing these oh my. uncles yeah those little great gray birds with white bellies and uh, white outer tail feathers and they're making those toy ray gun sounds it's just so neat to hear, hear them and i'm seeing they're joined by american tree sparrows that look as if they're wearing tie tacks without neckties and a lot of them hearing that little red breasted nuthatches they're about the half the size of the white breasted nuthatch they're smaller than a chickadee uh, and I'm seeing red-bellied woodpeckers. They just seem more common now, and they have become common. They've expanded their range northward in recent decades. And a lot of folks say, boy, they're similar to a red-headed woodpecker. They're around the same size, and they have red heads. The population of red-bellied woodpeckers has increased 0.8% per year from 1966 to 2019. And that's according to the North American Breeding Bird Survey. The red-headed woodpecker, on the other hand, has declined by over 1% per year. So they've dropped 54% during that same time when the red-bellied has increased their population. And it's it's interesting to me, anyway, that these non-migratory resident birds, such as uh, the cardinal, uh, Carolina wren, tufted titmouse, and the red-bellied woodpecker, appear to be the most adaptable, and they've expanded their ranges the most. And this seems to be primarily driven by warmer winters, kinder winters. And for some species, I believe it's further augmented by bird feeders because they have a a source of food. So uh, Lynn Wasmone heard from Lynn. He said, ah, I had a hundred and some swans here by the farm. And, you know, they tundras are, are trumpeters. The trumpeters are larger. Trumpeters are the ones that spend the summers here. They nest around Minnesota. 
and they spend the winters here. So they're the ones that we pretty much see all year. Uh, they're bigger. Trumpeters are bigger than tundras. But if you're looking at a big flock, if there's both, say there's both kinds of swans in there, they'd have to be side by side to tell the difference. And then if you got a uh, tundra that's got its feathers kind of fluffed up, it's just, uh, I don't know, for, had a chill. It's got its feathers fluffed up. And you have a trumpeter, which is a larger bird, but it has its feathers kind of sleeked down. You know what? The tundra probably looks bigger. So it, that size thing is really hard. Uh, Meriwether Lewis on the Lewis and Clark expedition named the tr- the tundra swans whistling swans, and they were known as whistling swans for a long time. And you, uh, I know in my mind's eye I have Andy Griffith's uh, theme song now being whistled by a tundra swan. And they don't whistle like that. They're higher pitched than the trumpeters. The trumpeters to me sound like a French horn, and I know everybody's ears are different, but uh, that's what they sound like. On the way to Mankato on Sunday, we saw three uh three flocks, one sizable flock on uh, Highway 83, and it was just uh, pretty cool to see of trumpeter swans, I'm assuming. Uh, Jim Grady, a friend from Fairmont, says, Al, I'm writing to let you know that this will be the last year that Steve Maurice and I will be building a large number of nest houses that the Martin County Conservation Club gives away each spring. Our two big saws are both over 45 years old and just about worn out. I've been doing this for over 40 years and made a conservative tally on the total number of the various types of nest houses our club has produced and given away to the public since the late 1970s. Over 3,000 wood duck boxes, 3,100 bluebird boxes, and nearly 5,000 wren boxes. We've also built bat houses, kestrel houses, flicker boxes, and nest shelves. For several years, our club put on seminars for area youth to build their own wood duck, bluebird, and wren houses. On some of these, we were joined by the Fox Lake Conservation League and a local chapter of the now disbanded Minnesota Waterfowl Association. Each spring since 2002, we have given wren houses to younger elementary students in our Martin County schools. Steve and I are in the process of building a few dozen bluebird houses to be installed at Killen Woods State Park. All of our club's nest houses were built using salvaged or reclaimed lumber. I'll let you know when we'll be giving away this year's wood duck and bluebird boxes later in March or early April. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, Paul Melchow, and Paul, I... I, I correspond with Paul some, and it, uh, I, I, it's always great to hear from him. Paul is a managing et- editor of the land. And, Paul, I know people that with your last name. Uh, some pronounce it Melchow, and some put like a Melchow more sound to it. So I, I hope Melchow, I'm going to go with Melchow. He saw two sandhill cranes leaving the river last Friday. He said, really enjoyed seeing them more often in the last few years. Tapped our maples last week, but not much happening. That should change with warmer weather. Always enjoy you. Well, thank you. You're fun and informative. Well, you are too, Paul, so thank you. Uh, Dale Waltz of Rochester sent me a photo of bald eagles on the nest. Uh, Chris Schaaf. 
of Albert Lee said, I saw a few hooded mergansers yesterday in Dane Bay. Also had a long-tailed weasel cross in front of me. Uh, Dwayne and Donna Swenson of Wasika had a bluebird. Linda Linna of Heartland had robins. Tom Manette, uh, Tom lives in Oakdale, asked what robins eat during the winter. Well, they eat berries and fruits uh, that persist on shrubs, trees, and vines. So hackberry, we don't think of hackberry, but, boy, that feeds a lot of birds. Uh, buckthorn, we don't like buckthorn. <laughs> it still, especially in the winter, it feeds birds. Crab apple, hawthorn, mountain ash, and others. Uh, frozen or fresh fruits such as apple slices, raisins, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, cherries, could be placed on the ground to feed them. Young robins, the problem, I guess, if you're a young robin, you go to robin school, and you <laughs> learn that fruit grows on trees and shrubs. They don't expect to find it elsewhere. And so they may not be common feeder birds because they don't think they're going to find fruit on feeders. But that doesn't mean that they never visit feeders. Do, do uh, birds Can birds taste like sweet and sour and salty and things like that? Because I was just thinking, you know, a lot of the, the berries and things that they eat, we would not like because they're so sour. So I'm just curious if that even is an issue. Do they have a different kind of taste? They do have, uh, it's hard to determine exactly what they have, but they certainly have taste buds like we do, so they'd have their favorites and things they don't like. Mm. High bush cranberry, if uh, you've eaten any off a tree, they're very, very tart. Mm -hmm. Birds will, they just won't eat them. They, oh. they don't want to eat them. But this time of year now, where there isn't so much to eat, they will eat them. So... Uh, in a garden, we always uh, talked about spinach plants and uh, ice cream plants. There's certain plants <laughs> that produce something that everybody, oh, man, you know, tomatoes, we got to eat those. And then there's other things that we think, oh, you know, if we run out of everything else, I'll eat that. And that's kind of like highbush cranberry. That's a spinach plant. So they come through now, and all of a sudden that doesn't look so bad. So they do have taste buds. I believe most birds on average, I hope I'm right on this, have fewer taste buds than we do. So they can probably eat uh, things with a little more gusto than perhaps we could because we uh, or, oh, are discriminating palates, which I have to admit I really don't have one. But uh, I talked to uh, somebody the other day by phone who had COVID a few years ago and lost taste of smell and because of that, most of it, uh, most of her taste. So she said she can just eat pretty much anything now. And uh, I said, what a what a dreadful thing, because boy, our our sense of smell, you know, isn't the greatest when compared to like a dog or something. But when it comes to food, I smell my food. My <laughs> wife will reprimand me on occasion because I'm, I'm smelling that food to make sure this is what I this is what I ordered. But uh, oh. So birds do have uh, taste buds, and they can certainly taste things, and they have favorites. Uh, if you want to feed robins, you can put a platform feeder off, put raisins or crushed peanuts or mealworms might be welcome. Uh, some folks say they eat cranberries in a feeder, but I put out domestic cranberries, and no matter how enticingly the berries were arranged, they ignored them completely. They didn't even pick them up and say, I'm not eating that. <laughs> I see robins feeding on suet, 
that has fallen from a suet cake feeder. So on occasion, I will crumble some and place it on the ground or in a platform feeder, and the robins gobble it down. I've seen uh, robins eating hulled sunflower seeds, uh, often sold as sunflower hearts, so they're without the shells, and they will eat jelly. And they love heated bird baths, so that's a major draw if you're a robin when you're looking for a place to hunker down for a while. Uh, Doug Keezer saw a Ross's goose in Wasika County, and you might say, what in the world is a Ross's goose? It's like a, uh, it's a diminutive snow goose, so they're beautiful little uh, little geese. Uh, Craig Zimprick of Lesseur saw a northern goshawk that would be rare here. I believe Tom Jessen might have had one a few years ago when he was in Medelia. Um, Diedrich Ben saw a merlin in Mauer County. Uh, here's a, a, this might be the question of the year, I'm not sure. How many times do deer defecate daily? Uh, <laughs> I just I look around the yard. I was going to say, they do it all over the yard. I see the little, looks like little chocolate raisins, covered raisins all over the place. <laughs> Yeah, they look uh, very much like rabbit, although the rabbit uh, poop is rounder. Yeah, and they're oval. And, uh, <laughs> yep, and I have one comes, it was just in my yard now, and it comes in and eats a little bit, and it just, it goes while oh. it's eating, <laughs> and leaves that here. And I had to look this up, because oddly enough, that wasn't right on the tip of my tongue how many times uh, deer defecate daily. In 1940, there was a researcher named Logan Bennett, and he found that deer defecate 12.6 times per day. Uh, observations today have found that during fall and winter, most whitetails empty their bowels 10 to 15 times per day in the spring and summer, and this, this frequency spikes, uh, fluctuating between 20 and 30 times uh, the rest of the year, 20 to 30 times. And they do all of this without using a single sheet of toilet paper. And I think that is just <laughs> it's remarkable how they do that. Uh, oh, this is uh, kind of tight. And with that, what are my chances of hitting a deer? I check with State Farm every year because they do a, a survey or an estimate on this. They estimate there were over 1.9 million animal collision insurance claims in the U.S., That'd be from July 1st, 2021, and June 30th, 2022. You're, if you want to hit a deer, your best chance is probably becoming a uh, West Virginian. They hit one, your chance is one in 35 in West Virginia. Uh, around here, South Dakota, one in 51. These, again, are the likelihood of hitting an animal, not just a deer. Uh, Wisconsin, one in 54. Iowa, one in 57. And Minnesota, one in 70. If you don't want to hit one, you know, move to Nevada, probably. One in 698. That'd be the, the lowest chance state, the lowest risk, unless you include District of Columbia. They're one in 907. But on the deer side, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, there are around one and a half million car accidents with deer each year. 
Uh, sadly, it kills 200 Americans, causes over 10,000 personal injury, and results in over $1 billion of vehicle damage. But please realize that the number of collisions is much higher than that because of all the unreported accidents. So if you're out there tooling around in your uh, your, your rattletrap Buick and you clip a deer, you're probably not going to report it because there's no coverage or anything for it. Uh, Carl Beckendorf, who's an amazing woodcarver from Fairmont, says there is a great blue heron rookery in that area. And you'll start seeing the great blue herons uh, just perched on nests. They want to be the first one back, and they get in there. And I don't know how they uh, how they let other ones know. I suppose they just wait till other ones come, and they say, look, this is mine right here. So they just stand there. It's kind of, they look sort of forlorn standing in this big tree on a, on a stick nest. Uh, he has an over, Carl has an overwintering flicker, and he said he's still seeing two bucks still carrying part of their antlers. So, uh, yeah, it seems like every March we get, uh, somebody will send me a photo or give me a call of a deer with antlers yet. Heard from uh, Vicki LaRoon, Vicki and Tom. They said uh, everything is singing spring these days. The birds are especially making their movement known. Red-winged blackbirds, new robins, woodpeckers drumming. I could go on, but Tom and I are happiest with our new sighting of a pair of sandhill cranes. We've been watching the Audubon app and another website of sandhill crane sightings to decide that our best chance of seeing them for ourselves Road trips heading in the directions of the sightings. We decided to stay in our area around the lakes and marshes, and we got lucky. We found a pair in a ditch between German and East Jefferson Lakes. I would not make a hunter, no stealth, and scared them into flight trying to get a closer look. We both got a couple of pictures. I'm in awe of their elegance, their sound, and their flight. We are happy for our multitudes of lakes and wetlands. We'll be out again and again to try our luck. Wondering what they're eating in the ditches. Thought uh, maybe since our last full moon was worm moon, which means worms are moving and are ground in free so fully, that is food that is available to them. And maybe grass roots. Uh, thanks, Vicki and Tom. Yeah, boy, you know, they're omnivores, and so they eat what they can find. They like the tubers of aquatic plants a lot, and they love our cultivated grains. So around here, primarily corn is left in the field. But down in the ditches, boy, they could be eating seeds, uh, nuts, roots, uh, even small mammals. So they would uh, gladly eat a mouse or a vole or anything else they could find down in there. That uh, my wife and I have been watching that explore.org from Rose Sanctuary in uh, Kearney, Nebraska. And it's uh, wonderful. It covers a five-mile swing of the Platte River, which uh, at its peak, probably that five miles will have up to 200,000 sandhill cranes there. The cranes we see here, for the most part, are uh, greater sandhills. The ones in Nebraska are lesser sandhills. The lesser sandhills migrate north, Canada, Alaska, even into Russia. The greater sand hills that we get here maybe come from Florida, and they kind of go around the uh, the Great Lakes, so Indiana, Illinois, and that area, and come in here. So we t- 
typically have greater sand hills. Are there greater sand hills in Nebraska during all this? Uh, I'm sure there are. I, I know there was one whooping crane there this year, so you, you do see other, but primarily those are lesser sand hills. But when you look at them, it, it looks it's a sandhill crane, and it's really neat to see them. So I just uh, well, I just heard uh, from Amos Vogel. Amos is from Morgan. He said, on the chances of hitting a deer with your automobile, your chances are considerably lower than lower. Thank you. Uh, Amos says, I personally hit at least 18 myself, Oof. possibly 19 if you count a deer leg that just picked the bumper. <laughs> that includes one with a motorcycle, so that should reduce your chances. Good and safe travels to you. Well, thanks, Amos. I, I'm not I appreciate you lowering my chances of hitting a deer. I, I, uh, I'm going to knock on wood here because you know when you say you've never done something, I've, I hit one deer and that was a a dead deer. See, that Al. Was, uh, oh, yeah. I, I wanted to say, did you check out the eagle cam? Did you see that? I was so excited that the uh, egg hatched yesterday in the Nor- uh, Minnesota DNR eagle cam, and so uh, this it's a single chick because the other egg broke at some point. And so it uh, is hatched now. And I just noticed looking at the Eagle Cam, because I love to watch it, they were, both of them were sitting on the nest, and I don't see that a lot. Is that just because the, the new baby was born, or what's the deal while they were both sitting there on the baby? Yeah, and that's what I want to believe it is, Karen. I do oh. see it once in a while, but I want to believe they're just uh, they're rejoicing in the moment and saying, boy, isn't this cool, you know, we have a baby, <laughs> and they're just, uh, that's what I hope it is. I don't, I don't know why else they would do that, because typically, you know, you got to, one of them's got to be, but they're both working all the time. One of them's got to be finding food while the other one's taking care of the young one. So I, I, I don't know why they do that, but it's really cool to see. And uh, my wife in the DNR uh, let me know when things are going on there so then I can go <laughs> watch it. And I appreciate that very much. It is, it is really neat to see. They're such uh, beautiful birds. Sometimes I wish I could see what they're seeing, though, uh, off camera. Because ah. it just, things get them, uh, they perk up, and they get excited sometimes. And you wonder, well, what is that? What is out there? What are you seeing? So, it's yeah, it's really a cool thing. Uh, um, a listener says, the inside of a window of my, the upstairs of my house, is filled with flies. What are they? Ooh. Yeah, it's like one of those horror movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. If they're grayish black and they resemble house flies, which I uh, I'd be willing to bet they do. They are something called cluster flies, and they're found in the homes in fall and spring, and occasionally during winter when mild temperatures occur. And in winter, it's usually on the south-facing window. Uh, the good news is they don't harm people, they don't bite or anything, they don't damage any property, they don't reproduce indoors, and they are parasites of earthworms. But they're cluster flies. Uh, you can do pretty much anything you want to. You could even vacuum them <laughs> off the window. Just uh, they, they really aren't harming anything. But, you know, if you got the 
cousin Ralph is coming to stay and it's a bedroom he's going to stay in, you know, well, maybe if it's Ralph, hard to get rid of him, you might want to just leave the flies there. (laughs) Does that mean that there were maggots somewhere that hatched in your house or or what? Because that's what I always think of when I think of flies and think of the calf shed when the maggots would be under if you cleaned a pen or something. And and I think, is there maggots in your house then? Because that kind of is gross. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Scaringly, there's probably maggots in our house somewhere. But these guys are uh, in earthworms. Oh. So, and then they come into our houses in the fall just to have a place to survive the winter. And then when it uh, warms up like this, and they come to again, and they're looking to get outside so they can find earthworms. Uh, Vicky mentioned. Hello. Year where those uh, cluster flies got to get busy and get outside and get so that's what's going on there again they look like house flies when you first see them you think oh my goodness house flies are everywhere here but they are not that they don't seem to fly down and land on our lemon meringue pie on the table or do anything that house flies are are doing they just uh, hang in that window, and I guess you just open the window, too, if that's a possibility, and I'm guessing they would zoom out of there saying, boy, finally we're rid of that place. Next year we're going to the mountains for the <laughs> winter. They are uh, they're just one of uh, those cool things in nature, and I guess they're not very cool if you're, a, if you're an earthworm. You don't want to see those. No. But uh, can I compost sunflower seed shells? Uh, boy, I think we talked about this a little while ago, but maybe not. Um, you can, but you might want to. You might want to do so in limited amounts. Uh, Air on the side of caution, because the entire plant contains chemicals that may inhibit the growth of other plants. But there is little research done, at least that I was able to find, on whether those allelopathic chemicals of sunflower seeds negatively impact the compost. So does the heat in the compost kill that? I I don't know. But they may be used as weed-suppressing mulch because, again, these sunflower seed shells contain a plant growth inhibitor. So some people recommend you don't place raked-up hulls on compost piles that would be used in gardens. However, you may put it between the garden rows to keep weeds at bay. So there there is some use, I guess, for those sunflower seed shells. It seems like so many things, you put them in a compost pile and they they work all right. I don't know that you want to put a lot of walnut leaves and things in there. I don't. uh, You mean because of the juglone that might inhibit growth? Yeah, I think those are some things just to be cautious. And anything that's diseased, too, you want to be really cautious about. Yeah, I know people tell me, oh, you just put them in there, don't have any problems. But yeah. uh, last uh, text I got, is there a hunting season on sandhill cranes in Minnesota? A friend of mine, Mark Heineman of Albert Lee, he's a, a chronic golfer, avid, it's beyond avid golfer. <laughs> he is driven to golf. And so he was uh, golfing in Wisconsin oh, late last fall, I suppose, and some sandhill cranes flew over. And he said, uh, he just mentioned looking up at him, he said, those are the ribeyes of the sky. And his fellow golfers sniggered and mocked him unkindly, as golfers can do, at least male golfers. 
but there is a season on cranes, and they are called the ribeyes of the sky by some because apparently they're that good eating. I can't imagine there's much to eat on them, but the hunting area in Minnesota includes portions of Kitson, Roseau, Marshall, Pennington, Red Lake, and Polk counties. So there's part of six counties, and that is it as far as where you can hunt them. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for sitting on the front porch with us. You know, back when my beaver cleaver world, <laughs> leisure travel was completely taken in the back seat of a Pontiac Canardly. And a lot of you remember Canardlies. Those were the ones that can hardly start, can hardly make it up a, a hill. My mother used to make chicken noodle soup with homemade egg noodles and chicken from chickens that we knew by their first names. Before supper one day, I told a younger member of our family that the chicken noodle soup was made from hen heads. Uh, Her eyebrows leaped upwards, and she refused to eat the soup from that point on. I felt good about making a difference. Remember, folks, Heartlands, while we're driving past, thanks for listening to me. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Uh, Thank you, as always, Karen, for your wonderful company. John of New Ulm, our thoughts are with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Talk to you next week. Bye, Al. Bye-bye.